ahead and let's pray together before we read the word together this morning and hear it preached. Father, we do come before you this morning, thankful for your word. Pray, Lord, that you would give freedom in the spirit to me in the pulpit this morning, and that by your spirit you would choose to work in each of us that are in this room and all of those that are tuning in live stream or later. We're thankful that your spirit stirs and moves everywhere as it wills. And we pray that it would be your will to stir in our very presence this morning. Set us aside for your purposes and speak to us, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. Matthew chapter 17, verses 22 through 27. This is the holy and errant word of God. As they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. When they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and said, Does your teacher not pay the tax? He said, Yes. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, What do you think, Simon? From whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? And when he said, From others, Jesus said to him, Then the sons are free. However, not to give offense to them, go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. And though the grass withers and the flower fades, the Word of God is forever. Thanks be to God. Amen. Well, over time, a well-formulated, well-balanced diet is the best way to go. It could be, though, that you are going to run a, a race this afternoon, and so you have been pounding carbohydrates all morning, and you will at lunch. And no doubt if you do that tomorrow, uh, you will pound proteins because you will be hungry, having just fixed on carbohydrates today. And then probably the day after, you'll think, oh man, I missed the cupcakes and the brownies and the cake, and so you'll splurge on those. And that's one way to, to live. You can satisfy yourself in moments like that, but it's nourishment over the long run that benefits your body the best. If you are running from thing to thing and just seeking to fill the moment with whatever the craving is or whatever the need of the moment is, it can satisfy in the moment, but over the long run it will actually do destruction to your body and not help it at all. Think of preaching like that, that over time as a local church, 
and you're sitting under one preacher, and as you go through what I would call consecutive expository preaching, we are where we go, one text after the next text after the next text, that over time it is the best diet for God's people. There are times that you could run to this thing or that to speak to it, but over time, just preaching consecutive expository preachings under the same preacher, you will begin to hear the whole counsel of God. And that, frankly, will equip you for every cultural moment, for everything going on in the headlines, for every trial that you face, for every moment of your life. And we see evidence of that this morning. Find that we're just going through Matthew, and yet this feels like a very relevant text for what is going on in our culture today. Five points this morning, five very quick points. The first is this. The mission of Christ is of the utmost importance. The mission of Christ is of the utmost importance. We have here in verse 22 and verse 23, Jesus telling His disciples yet again, this time in even more detail, the very heart of His life and the very heart of His work. He calls Himself the Son of Man. This is His favorite self-designation. He says the Son of Man is to be delivered over. He's to be delivered over to the hands of men. And of course, the one who delivers him over is Judas, but it is not just Judas that delivers the Son of Man over, Jesus Christ over. It will also be that he is delivered over because the Father has delivered him over. And that's not only the Father who delivers him over, but it is the will of the Father, and it is the will of the Spirit, and it is also the very will of the Son of God that the Son of God be handed over to sinners. The Father and the Son and the Spirit will covenant together in eternity past that the Son would come into the world that they created, that He would be incarnated in this world, and that He would be handed over, and that He would die, and that He would be buried, and that He would be raised on the third day, so that sinners might be saved. The Son comes into the world on mission to seek and to save the lost so that we might be saved. And that is of the uttermost importance, the mission of Christ. We're told the text in the text there, the disciples are, quote, greatly distressed, end quote, by this, and so they should be, that the Christ, the Son of God, should be handed over and that He should be slain should distress you, but they and we should be even more distressed if this wasn't true, that this wasn't the mission of Christ. But it is seeking and saving the lost is His very reason for coming into the world, and it's His very reason for sending you and I into the world. And that provides all the context for what is about to occur in this passage. So second, the mission of Christ is more important than personal rights. The mission of Christ is more important than personal rights. We're told that the collectors of the true drachma tax came to Peter. 
These collectors would have been Jews, and they would have been Jews that were working for the religious establishment, so for the hierarchy in Judaism. And they were sent out to collect this tax. It was a temple tax that they were collecting. This was a Roman government-approved tax upon every Jew throughout the land. And so you not only have the sanction of the Jewish religious leaders, you not only have the Jewish government enforcing this tax, you also have the Roman government enforcing this tax upon the Jews. And the tax was collected to maintain the temple there in Jerusalem. Now this tax, it didn't appear out of nowhere. The Jews didn't just make this up off the top of their heads. If you were to look at Exodus 30, we see there in Exodus 30 that there is what was called a census tax. In Exodus 30, we read this, Everyone who is numbered in the census from 20 years old and upward shall give the Lord's offering. The rich shall not give more, and the poor shall not give less than the half shekel. And then we're told this, It is, quote, for the service of the tent of meeting. A tabernacle was the tent of meeting, this tent that was constructed by God's decree that the Israelites carried through the wilderness. And that tent, later when the Jews are in Jerusalem and Solomon builds the temple, the temple will take the place of that tent in the national life. And so the Jews are translating that tax that was used for the tabernacle, they're now translating it to the temple and it will have a long history in Judaism. In fact, the Roman government will continue to apply the tax to every Jew throughout the Roman Empire, even after the temple is destroyed in A.D. 70. And they do it as a kind of pressing salt into the wounds of the Jews because the Jews rebelled in A.D. 70 and the Romans will destroy the temple. And so then the Romans will continue to collect this tax but they'll apply it to the temple of Jupiter in Rome, the great temple in Rome. It's kind of insult to injury to the Jews. Two drachmas were equivalent to about a half shekel, so two or three days of wages for the average Jew. And these collectors of this two drachma tax, they come to Peter and they have a question. Does your teacher not pay the tax? And Peter, he is quick to answer. He says, yes. It appears that Jesus paid all the taxes that were required of him in the Jewish land and by the Romans. And, and so he quickly answers, yes, he pays the tax or will pay the tax. Peter then, we have a change of scenery where we have Peter outside with him, but then he enters into the house where Jesus is. And Jesus, of course, has not been outside. He has not been party to this conversation. He didn't hear it bodily. And yet when Peter walks into the room, Jesus knows of the conversation that they've had. He knows of the exchange between he and these tax collectors. And so he asks Peter, what do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth take toll or tax from their sons or from others? There's so much that we think is done in darkness and, and hidden from anybody. But Jesus hears all and he sees all. 
And so we ask. Now, Jesus' question to Peter is highlighting something. It's highlighting that Jesus has every right not to pay this tax. It's his right. There are various reasons. I spent a lot of time this week thinking about this, and there are a lot of different reasons, and I want to detail some for you this morning. But one, the one that Jesus highlights here, is that a king does not take a toll or a tax from his sons. He takes the toll or the tax from others, as Jesus says. The sons are free. They aren't subjects like everyone else. They belong to the household of the king, and the king does not tax his own household. So Jesus is here making a claim to deity, that he is the very son of God. And this tax was for the temple of God, so Jesus, as the Son of God, is not obliged to pay this tax. There are at least three other reasons that could be given for why Jesus should not pay this tax. This is a tax for the temple. And what was the temple? Well, again, we must go back to the tent of meeting or the tabernacle. What was the tabernacle or the tent of meeting? Well, it was that tent that was set up where God would descend in a glory cloud upon that tent, and then a priest would go in representing the people, and he would meet with God there in that tent. And it was a true sign that you are my people and I am your God, and I'm dwelling with you. I'm with you. And so when we move to Solomon building the temple, what happens? In that chapter where Solomon dedicates the temple, God in His glory cloud descends upon the temple and He fills the temple. And we no longer have the tabernacle. But what are the tent and the tabernacle pointing to? They're but shadows pointing to Jesus Christ, the Son of God, becoming flesh and dwelling among His people. John will pick up this language in John 1 where he says, And the Word became flesh and tabernacled among us. And we've seen His glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And the ambassadors of a a king arrive in some land, you may want to honor that ambassador, and so you may give gifts to that ambassador. But when the king arrives, it would be absolutely silly to then demand of the king that he give gifts to the ambassador. The ambassador is pointing to him. The tabernacle and the temple pointed to the coming of the Son of God and God making His home among His people forever in the person of His Son. He shouldn't have to pay the tax to what foreshadows Him. Third, Jesus is a rabbi and priests, and it appears rabbis by extension weren't required to pay the tax. Fourth, we might argue that Jesus should not pay this tax because of all the seemingly ethical dilemmas that are involved, and there are a lot of them. Let me, just a few of them that came to mind this week. The temple which this tax went to was a mess. 
The Jews had turned into a mar- this into a marketplace inst- instead of a worship place. And if Jesus gives the temple tax, wouldn't he be supporting and reinforcing the abuse of God's house? The common people, especially the Gentiles, were being disenfranchised by what was occurring at the temple. Wouldn't he be supporting this oppression? Wouldn't he, by giving to the temple, be demonstrating poor stewardship? Even more importantly, wouldn't it show support for these false religious leaders and these false teachers, these wicked and evil men that had instituted things that were false? And the worship of God. And maybe most importantly, wouldn't Jesus, by paying this tax, signal that he was considered among the others, the outsiders, and not the Son of God? There is possibly enough bad ethics here to say he shouldn't pay. In fact, shouldn't he boldly speak out against the corruption and the abuse and the oppression and the false teaching that was occurring at the temple? Shouldn't he assert who he was? This is the moment. He's the very Son of God. Shouldn't he tell them and correct them? If ever there was a time, surely it's this, Jewish representatives of the temple collecting a tax for the temple from the Son of God. And yet, what we see is that Jesus doesn't speak out against these things. Neither does He refuse to support the temple. He gives the tax. He doesn't stand upon His own rights here. Christ's mission is more important than personal rights. He has others in the forefront of his mind. Others. Our third point. The mission of Christ at times calls for winsomeness. The mission of Christ at times calls for winsomeness. Some are ready to hurl the insult of cowardice when someone doesn't stand up as they expect them to in any given moment. But Jesus is never a coward. He is never fearful in that kind of way. And yet He doesn't stand up here. He tells us in verse 27 the reason. He says, however not to give offense to them. He has others in the forefront of his mind. In order not to give offense, that word is the word that we get the word scandalized from. He doesn't want to scandalize them. Christ is establishing a pattern of humility that he desires his people to follow. Jesus humbled Himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made Himself nothing for others. If 
think of even the way that he pays this tax. He's showing that he remains the Son of God. He's not denying that. He has rights over all of nature, over all the earth. He calms storms. He raises the dead. He now makes a fish appear with money in its mouth. Though he has every right. Every right. He doesn't want to give in this moment unnecessary offense to these unbelievers. And so yet again, he gives up his right. It's for the lost, the mission first, winsomeness was needed. J.C. Ryle said this, he said, it may sound very fine and seem very heroic to be always standing out tenaciously for our rights, but it may well be doubted with such a passage as this whether such tenacity is always wise and shows the mind of Christ. There are occasions when it shows more grace in a Christian to submit than to resist. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9, verse 12, We have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. But that leads to our fourth point. Christ's mission at times calls for boldness. I want you to turn with me to another passage. I want you to just turn over to Matthew chapter 21. It's a few chapters later. Matthew 21, verse 12, and I want to read this with you. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple, and He overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. He so incensed that John in his gospel will say that Jesus puts together some cords and he makes them into a whip and he uses that whip to drive them out of the temple. At times... The church and Christians need to act in boldness for the sake of the mission of the church. Daniel's friends would rather burn in fire than bow down to a false god. The early Christians would rather be fed to lions than bend a knee to Caesar and worship. Tyndall would rather burn at the stake than see God's people not have the Word of God in their hands. Boldness is needed. When the gospel is at stake, when souls hang in the balance, boldness is needed. Here's the question, right? Why winsomeness in chapter 17? And why boldness in chapter 21? Why not be willing to give offense in the tax, but willingly give offense in the temple? It appears that Jesus didn't believe this was the place, or this was the time, or this was the person. He's in Galilee. He's not yet ready to come out in full force, and these collectors were not the people to make His statement before. We could say it this way. It was really a matter of wisdom. 
And that leads to our final point. The mission of Christ at times calls for winsomeness. The mission of Christ at times calls for boldness. But the mission of Christ at all times calls for wisdom. Some bring a hammer and a fighting spirit to every conversation and issue. And others bring an apology and a shrinking spirit to every conversation and issue. Some are always ready to fight and some are always ready to appease. Some believe every hill is worth dying on. Some believe there is no hill worth dying on. But this isn't our way. Because it isn't and wasn't our Savior's way. I want to be clear. Christianity is not a weak-kneed religion. We are not to operate in constant fear. It's actually weakness, though, feeling like you have to respond to everything and die on every hill. It is weakness to think that everything is a major issue and a slippery slope. And it's fear. There is equally a weakness in not being willing to die on any hill and not responding or speaking against anything. It's fear. We don't have to be weak-kneed. We don't have to be as Christians. Because we believe in a sovereign God. So we don't have to die on every hill because we trust our sovereign God is working even when we disagree with the things being imposed upon us. This is all according to His will and His plan. On the other side, we can willingly die on some hills. We can put ourselves in jeopardy because we believe our sovereign God's truth will ultimately win the day. He is worth suffering for. Sometimes winsomeness is called for. Sometimes boldness is called for. At all times, wisdom is called for. When Jesus sent out the disciples there in Matthew 10, and He's sending them out on mission to seek and to save the lost, He says this to them. He says, Behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Wisdom. Wise as serpents. Here he pays so as not to give offense, but when the right time has come, he clears out the temple because it has given offense. We have the need for wisdom. I was wrestling with this uh, even this morning before coming here on the drive here still. And I think what I'm going to do is something I haven't done before. I think next week I will come back to this text. Because I think we need to talk about why we have government. And why God has given us governments. And I think we need to discuss that. And I think we need to discuss when is 
And what is it ever right for there to be civil disobedience? And I think we need to explore that together next week. But what I want you to see this morning from this text is this. Especially in light of this evening, there's been a lot of talk in recent months, I think in the broader church and in this church, of what it looks like, about what leadership should look like in the church during these days. I think we all recognize that there are more pressures coming to bear upon the evangelical church in this country. There's more pressure that's coming to bear upon individual Christians in this country. It's becoming a more hostile place to live our faith. I think we have a lot of people we can learn from. We have brothers and sisters scattered throughout this world in the persecuted church, and North Korea and China and 1040 window. We have the centuries of the church being persecuted in different ways, and our brothers and sisters in Christ navigated those waters. We don't have to reinvent the wheel. We shouldn't reinvent the wheel. I think about just being with some those Chinese brothers and sisters a year and a half or so ago when I was in China and talking to them about this, and they understood you can't die on every hill. And yet there were hills that we need to die on and be willing to die on. It's the Chinese church. Think there are some, I know, watching social media and just hearing conversations and listening to sermons. There are some in the greater church who, who pray and hope for winsomeness, a generation of winsome leaders to rise to the front. Others are praying and hoping for bold leaders. Each rightfully understand that there is need. We need winsomeness. We win them by our love. We seek not to give an offense and to erect even more barriers to people finding Christ attractive. And no doubt, there is the need for boldness. We need at times to stand against what is wrong. We need to speak with a prophetic voice. We need to call the state and the culture to righteousness and to justice. We'll ordain some new elders tonight. Men that will have this heavy responsibility upon them for decades. And when I pray for them, I'm not praying for them to be winsome. I'm not praying for them to be bold. I'm praying that they would be men of wisdom so that they know when to be winsome, know when to be bold, and when to help teach you when to be winsome and when to be bold. when to pay the tax, and when to clear out the temple. Just like the Savior they serve. My friends, if you are always bold, there's a problem. If you're always winsome, there's a problem. It's actually not very hard to always be bold. 
It's not very hard to always be winsome. You and I can do that in our own strength. It's impossible to always be wise in our own strength. And it requires that you and I lean into and lean upon and look to Christ. It means that we are a prayerful people over our Bibles all the time. It means that we are looking to our Savior's example and we are calling for His leading and we are seeking to be conformed to His likeness. Paul says in Colossians, in Him, in Him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. You can't be wise apart from having close communion with Him. And we need a generation of Christians who are wise. Would you pray that for me as I'm praying it for you? Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we're thankful that in our Lord and our Savior is all knowledge and all wisdom. hidden in Him. And yet we're thankful that it is not hidden in some way that we can't ascertain it, but He has set before us His godly example. And He chooses to commune with us by His Word and prayer and the sacraments. We pray that we would be those that enjoy close communion with our Savior that we might be wise and know when to act boldly and when to act winsomely. Help us to lean into, to lean upon, and always be chasing after our Savior. As we seek to be on mission for our Lord in this world, and may we see many one to saving faith by our example. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.